Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Thank you for joining us once again for the StoryCraft Cafe podcast. Today we are talking about plot in our rewrite a novel in 60 days with dabble challenge and this is a show that we did a few days ago and our panel of participants talked about discovering uh you know if your plot is doing what you intended for it to do you know so last uh fall we we did this challenge where we talked about writing that novel for the first time but now we have a finished first draft and we're taking an objective look back at what we've written and determining if our plot goes anywhere and those great characters that we talked about a couple of weeks ago are they having a satisfying journey and that's really what plot is all about these you have these great characters and now what do they do and we talk about that today. We're going to continue this discussion on plot this week, this Thursday at noon Eastern Time. You can go to storycraft.cafe and you can join in the conversation and uh, and play along with our excellent panelists. Now on to our show. Welcome in to the Storycraft Cafe. Uh, I am Hank Garner, your host, as always. And joining me, Josh Hayes and Rick Partlow, the Plot Masters. Hello. Today, we are Hi. talking about plot. In uh, the, you know, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about character. And, you know, one week we talked about protagonist. And the next week we talked about the rest of your cast of characters and, and how we blend all those together. But... You know, if you got great characters, but they don't do anything, then do you even have a book? Well, I mean, maybe if you're, um, uh, what's the Stephen what's King, the, the the genre that I'm blanking on, where stories don't actually do anything. Um, oh, like slice of life. Uh, <laughs> he got some good coffee, and then he went to a restaurant and he had a salad, and yeah, right, right. So, um, plot. Do, do you guys, when you're thinking about a book, do you think about plot first as in, boy, I, I have an idea of something that happens. Now let me cast this thing that happens with some fun characters. Or do you think of character first and then find something for those characters to do? I definitely think of plot first, at least not like a detailed plot, but yeah. just an idea. Like this book is going to be about, you know, aliens invading you know through a portal on mars you know it's that and i don't come up with anything more substantial but then i you know i got that idea then i have to think of where it's going to happen when it's going to happen and once i get that then i can start working on characters 
Yeah, I do the same thing. Like uh, uh, for Edge of Valor, my original concept or idea, I usually start with a very small idea and then kind of it balloons out from there and becomes something more. With Valor, I wanted to do a mashup of two of my favorite military movies, which are uh, Black Hawk Down and Courage Under Fire. And I wanted to merge those two together into a story. And so the, and, and with me, like the concept, those those are not very uplifting stories. No, um, (laughs) they're, they're not. I mean, the ending (laughs) of Courage Under Fire is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The, I wanted the feel of Black Hawk Down. Yeah. Uh, I wanted the the emotional roller coaster of what those men went through. Right. Um, and then I also wanted the mystery and um, almost conspiracy esque feel of Courage Under Fire. And um, I, so I, my original idea was okay, these Space Marines are in a dropship and it crashes in the city and the mission goes to hell. And then what goes from there? And I was originally just going to tell that story. Um, but then as I, as I contemplated, how do I do the elements of courage under fire? And if, for those of you who haven't seen it, please watch courage under fire. It's a fantastic movie. Denzel Washington and Meg Ryan. Um, and Lou Diamond uh, Phillips, Lou Diamond Phillips. Matt um, actually Lou Diamond <laughs> Phillips, uh, the character that he played, I I wanted a character like that in in the book, um, and then of course you need to con- build the plot elements around that. But uh, as I developed the idea, it became more than just the simple concept. And I think uh, when it comes to plot, a lot of people confuse idea and concept for story. And they're like, this is a great idea. I'm going to write about that. But one great idea does not a book make, right? Yeah, like you, 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 right. you have an idea, you have to have, but what's going to happen in that idea? Right. And and in the writing process for me, for Valor, it, well, it took me six years to write that book um, from original idea to being published. And the reason it took me so long was because, well, first of all, it was complicated. And to write a complicated story, you have to know all of the complications and you have to figure all those out and then figure out ways to counter them and and solve them. And I was writing in two different timelines and then also writing characters um, that were lying about what happened. And so not only did I have to know exactly what happened, but I had to know what the lie was and then try to figure out my when I got the book done, what I wanted to have happen was people read the book twice and see where the characters are lying and then understand why they're lying about that certain thing. And then when they reread the book, they can go, oh, he's he's talking about this part of the actual story. And he's lying about it, and you can see that in the book. That's, and I think that comp- the complexity of that took me so long to get right, but the 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 seed of that idea grew into the story. And I'm I'm huge on plot. Like, not uh, um, a reader told me once that my books are complex but not complicated, and it's super hard to make that complicated story not or the uh not hard to read right right 
so I liked taking that original concept, a small concept, and then developing it out and figuring out what are the complications, adding that to the plot. And so I, I definitely start with the plot idea and then build it out from there. Knowing that, that both of you guys are such, um, um, great plotters and, and that's part of your, um, stated process i was fully prepared to take the opposite view from from you guys today but what i'm realizing in just listening to you talk is that even though i feel like when i'm thinking about a new story that i think of character first and then think of uh, a problem for them to have or an adventure for them to go on i'm kind of realizing that they they come very closely together mm. um like I might be thinking of some adventure uh, and then that, that normally comes with a character that, that, that uh, has some sort of trait that would, that would be fun to see how this trait plays out in the midst of this adventure. And I'm realizing that they kind of come together. The, the, the person and the problem mm -hmm. uh, are very closely intertwined for me. Did, does that 100% uh, does that um, resonate with you guys at all? One of the one of the issues that I had in Valor, specifically Edge of Valor, um, was that uh, it, in Courage Under Fire, they had a character who had survived everything, but he was in a hospital and he was traumatized and he was injured and he couldn't talk, even though he wanted to talk. He couldn't talk. And then even yeah. when he did, he was so distraught about what actually happened Um that he just he broke down and he he was saying things that were true but they didn't make they didn't resonate they didn't make any sense to Denzel's character as he was talking and as I got into the story I realized that I needed a character like that and I needed a character to want to tell the truth and to try to tell the truth but in a fragmented way that built the mystery and made it that much more what happened right because at the beginning of the book we already know the mission went to shit right so like <laughs> right. building that up and making that like how did it go so badly um this character uh was a female they got captured by this militia which was an idea that i didn't have when i started writing the book um and i put her through some pretty significant assaults during the captivity and that those assaults and just the mental strain that she had and the physical abuse that she took really messed her up. And, um, I wanted to reveal, um, the lying aspect of the book, like halfway, right? Because I wanted the, the, the Jackson Fisher, the main character interviews, all these survivors. And the first couple of interviews are, these characters that are lying, but you, as the audience, you don't know that they're lying. Like you just, you're okay. This is what happened. And then you get to the 50% mark where he finally is able to talk to this girl and she breaks down and she starts saying these fragments, like a, a traumatized person would say, like, we shouldn't have done that. We should have done this, like that kind of thing. And that plants the seed in the reader's mind that, Oh, something really significant happened here and nobody wants to talk about it. Um, and so then you just, take that and stack that up but that didn't happen in the in the 
original story draft, I came up with the character. And then because I had that character, what could I do? What could I do to significantly traumatize this character into the state that I needed her to be in? And that in and itself became part of a plot element that kind of resonated through the rest of the story. What's fun about that is that you are employing the unreliable narrator. 100%. Um, and that becomes a plot device. Yes. It, it, because it, it, because this, this uh, narrator is unreliable and you as the writer know that they're lying. Right. Um, that's going to directly affect the way the second half of that story plays out. Right. And that's that. I think that was the hardest thing uh, for me was yeah. the, un, uh, the unreliable narrator is actually very easy to write but making it line up with the truth in such a way that when you go back and look at it, you can go, right. aha. Um, and then it, the ending where we actually find out everything that happened um, through a re reliable narrator, you can go back and see the unreliable characters. And I wanted to have a, an empathetic response from the reader to go, I understand why they were lying, even though maybe I don't agree with it. Well, you know, I've I've often heard uh, people use the phrase "character is plot," and this yeah. is a a fantastic um, uh, illustration of that, where where a character and a character's behavior becomes the plot or or has a direct effect on it. Uh, Rick, do you think in terms uh, of that, where the character directly affects the plot? Well, of course they they do. I'm, uh, it just depends on uh, it depends on what the um, situation is. I mean, yeah. it, I kind of have a balance that uh, it's different for each book. That uh, sometimes I have a plot where the idea is strong enough that this is just how things have to go, and other times the plot's a little bit more uh, flexible. And if the character is powerful enough, I can change the plot significantly for them. Um, you know, like um, in Drop Trooper, um, I came up with the idea of writing a story about the guys in power and armor, you know, the Marines uh, in this right. war that I'd already created. But the reason I hadn't done it earlier was because I couldn't think of any interesting story to tell in that setting uh, until I thought of, you know, there's a character who's in powered armor. What makes him significant? What makes him, you know, his story different enough that I'm going to write a whole book about it or a whole series about it? Well, let's just say he's agoraphobic. He's afraid to get out of the armor, you know, he, and then you got to come up with some reason why. So you got to come up with a, trauma in his past and the fact that he's lived in like the underground tunnels of the city for his whole life until he was a teenager and hasn't seen the sun since he was like seven years old. And uh, then that, that character influences the rest of the plot because you have to come up with a reason. Well, if that's, if that's his weakness then you've got to put him in a position where he's out of the armor and he's, right forced to be outside and deal with the with the uh, the fear 
So that definitely, his character definitely influenced the plot of the first book. If you, um, if you read a book uh, on plot or you take a, you know, some sort of course, a lot of times you'll hear um, plot broken down into elements like inciting incident, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution. Um, since we're our our main focus right now is is rewriting or editing. First off, this this is going to be a two part question. Do do you guys when you start plotting? Do you think in terms of these uh, kind of set in stone plot devices or yeah. or the the way you look at it? And yes or no, when you then have that first draft completed and you're kind of doing a, a read over and, and seeing if your draft has accomplished what you wanted it to, do you look for those elements in a story, these kind of high points or these, these tent poles, if you will? Well, I, I don't do that when I do the plot, but I, a lot of that reason is because um, it's not something I have to think about consciously because I spent so much of my formative years reading these kind of books, you know, and I kind of have a feel for the story. So when I write an outline, I can tell I'm like, this, there's something wrong about this part of the outline. I need to change this. And I couldn't tell you, well, is it because this should be the climax or this should be the right, the, I just know, you know, because yeah. I've seen enough of them. But once I've got the outline completed, um, I can look through and with a, you know, a list of those things and I can say, Oh yeah, this is the inciting incident. This is that, this is that if I have the list there, but I don't look at that when I'm writing the outline, I just kind of know, but that's obviously something you have to gain through experience. And if somebody's doing this for the first time, it might help to have that list handy. And when you're writing your outline, have that sitting there. And then if you see something that doesn't fit in the, three act or five act structure, whichever you prefer. I kind of like a five act. Um, then, you know, you can change that before you get into the actual writing of your first draft. So you don't waste time having to rewrite all that again, because it's, it's very frustrating. I know I haven't done it for a while, but it, it was back in the early days of my career. It was really frustrating to take a couple of thousand words that you worked hours on and then just, toss them all because they don't fit in the plot <laughs> that's the worst <laughs> i uh i i i don't think of my books in in terms of like three act four act five act structure i do uh when i plot uh, and this goes goes back to the the the, uh, the idea concept uh of this the idea for your story when i plot i i typically know how long i want my chapters to be and so when i get to the expanded plot outline um, and this is like step three in the story generation process, right? You have idea, you have concept, and then you balloon that out and then you work out what you need to get there. A lot of the times the idea that I had for the story is sometimes the inciting incident. And so in that aspect, I think of that. And then from there, I work backwards, uh, about 10 or 15%, uh, to know where I want the story to start because I know yeah. where the inciting incident is. Um, and a lot of people like to have trouble with the, the, we call it the murky middle, right? Where you, you, mm -hmm. you're working up to this, this great idea and then you hit that great idea. And now you've got to 
finish it off, but you've got 40% of the book to get through before you can get there. If you're looking for a novel length work, I typically aim for a hundred thousand words for the plot. I, uh, generation, like, so I can look at it and go, this is where I need chapters at. This is what they're doing. This is how many words a chapter is going to go. It's I got to get to a hundred thousand words for the novel. Now, typically I go long, like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm known for going long and I apologize to everybody that writes short stories for, I'm in the middle of writing a short story now that should be 10,000. I'm at like 6,800 and I still have like five <laughs> scenes to write. And I'm like, I'm going over, like I, I I'm going over. I'm sorry. Um, but then you look at, um, that goes back to the idea concept. The idea concept was great, but it doesn't make the whole story. So then you've got to stack other things on top of it to either a make that inciting incident worse or create additional problems that they have to get through in order to get to the ending. And so I look at it as steps like that, where I, I say, this is where I, this is the idea. This is the concept I had. Now what? And then I, I build all that stuff in the middle. So it's always like the rising tension that you mentioned. It's always doing this. And so like, I don't have a point in my stories and I write super tight, but I, I don't have a point in my story where there's a law. Now you do have like the rising and falling where you have scene sequence where you have a, a maybe a fight scene and then you have a bridge and then you have another action scene and then you have a bridge where maybe the characters are, are, reconciling something that they've done or you you have a character building scene where you you learn something about their backstory or you see like one of the characters i have in weaponized loves cooking and you would never know that from any of the other scenes that he has you're very gruff very like i'm gonna kick this dude's ass and get a gun and go shoot up everything but you put him in a kitchen and he's like a gourmet chef and so like that i call i call those scenes bridge scenes because they yeah. don't necessarily reflect the plot as a whole but they do give you a little bit of character and you can kind of sprinkle in plot in there um but i always stack those scenes uh getting to the end um i i sh probably should pull out a list get that checklist and go inciting incident rising action like all this stuff but like rick said it's all uh kind of intuitive for me now like i i look at a story and i know what i need and then i just build the plot around what i need to make it work well and both of you um are are great plotters we uh and, and but you both have said that it kind of becomes uh, that that you it, it comes intuitively in the writing process yeah. um was there a moment or, or a time when you were writing where you realized you could kind of cut the switch off and it just is instinctual? Um, like there, there comes a point where when you're writing your first, you know, couple of books and you're conscious of the elements of story, you know, am I hitting this? Am I doing this? And then there comes a point where it just, it just comes out naturally. There's like, well, I, I pants the first, six books I wrote. So yeah. by the end of that, uh, when I started plotting, I had a, enough of a feel for after, you know, having to go take a year to write a book, you know, and make sure all these, all these uh, scenes that were just coming, you know, coming off my fingers while I was sitting there without much of a plan, make sure that they, they fell into some kind of a plot structure. Uh, after that, I pretty much, had a feel for it. I, and I like this by the seventh and eighth novels that I did, I, I, uh, 
I had an idea of like instinctive feel for how the rising and falling elements of the plot. The, the, the book that I wrote um, when I first got back into writing um, and this is back 2011, 2012. And I've, I've messed with it for years, right? Like yeah. I've been on your show before I started writing when I was 14, I still have the first book I ever wrote uh, in hand ink, pen and ink on a notebook. <laughs> it's a horrible book, whatever. Um, but when I first came back to it after many years of just kind of dabbling and going, okay, I really want to try to write a story. I didn't plot it dabbling, out. Dabbling, no pun intended. Aha, yeah. Um, <laughs> I started with the idea. And my idea was, what happens uh, if the concept was Earth was, had been in the, in the far past had been like a prison planet? And that's how humanity got there. That's how we got our start is we were just a prison planet. We got dropped off there and all the, uh, all like the dinosaurs were like brought from another world and, and put on the earth. And so they existed in other places, right? So the, the ship crash lands on an alien planet and there's dinosaurs on this alien planet. Why? And that was the whole thing. And I wrote like 50,000 words and I loved it. But I had absolutely no idea where I was going. <laughs> like I got to 50,000 words and I realized I'm going to need another 200,000 words to tell this story. Mm. And they're not doing anything like they're they're just kind of doing, uh, you know, slice of life like we talked about earlier. And I realized at that point that I really needed to sit down and work on plot. And I've done like, you know, all the writing books on plot. Like I've, I've done the master classes um, on masterclass.com. Like I've, right. I've listened to those guys hundreds of hours of YouTube interviews. I just watch them all the time. And um, that's, I think that's one of the major things that I tell new writers when they come to me and say, I want to, I, I self-publishing a thing. I want to write a book and I want to self-publish it. What do I need to do? And my response to them is live and breathe it for 10 years and then write a book. Uh, because, well, because I've been doing this my whole life. Yeah. And so like it's it, it's innate it's innate to my being to create a story and I know intuitively all through all of the the learning that I have done these specific things. So it's it takes a minute to like think of the fundamentals like okay this is what you need for a fundamental story how do you develop that in a plot. Um and yeah, it, I mean it's not easy. Your story about that that book you're writing reminds me of uh, one I was writing when I was in high school, where I had it was like an, a post nuclear survival type of book, and I had uh, like six or seven main characters and all these different situations, and I had them all traveling across the country to this one place, and these and I had handwritten something like. 370 pages <laughs> and, and they were still not even together yet much right. I haven't introduced the main threat that they'd be fighting <laughs> I'm like that's why I gave up on them like I'm never gonna finish this this is yeah I mean a lot of people like it used to be that you write short stories to get in the industry and you get those published in like magazines or whatever and then you progress into novels I kind of did it backwards and I I wrote novels and then I struggled with short stories. I actually really like short stories now because short stories, you can take that idea and the concept 
and that's just it. But are your short stories really short, Josh? Well, I mean, they're they're shorter <laughs> than my novels. <laughs> they're shorter than my novels. Um, but it's with a short story, you can focus on that idea um, and that singular concept. And on a short story, it works. So the thing I also like about short stories is you can be ambiguous about the ending. You don't have to have a solid uh, full circle ending in a short story you can leave it open to interpretation a lot of times um i love uh, ambiguous endings on short stories i'll just say it not novels right but short stories yeah I, I, I don't want to have and i don't want to have an investment of you know 15 hours of reading and it not resolve in some way yeah but i will compl i'll totally give you that in a short story I like uh, the the first short story that I wrote and published that I, I don't think is available anymore. I called it The Watch, and I had just watched Memento, and um, <laughs> I wanted to do Memento in a short story, and so so I started at the ending and stacked chapters backwards through the timeline. And so yeah. when it starts, he's I think that he's been shot or something. And he's like running away from these guys and you don't know why he's running. You don't know who these guys are. And as you pro progress back, you get closer and closer to the event that kicks off the story. And basically what it is, it's just this teenager that stole a watch from a department store and the security guys are, are chasing him. But at, when you start off, you think it's like some spy or, or some type of bigger thing. And it's really just a kid that stole a watch from a, a convenient uh, department store. Um, I thought it was fun. Like it was a little exercise to do something different, but I'll doing plot for short stories for me is super easy. You just come up with a concept and then you just focus everything on the story about that concept. I love it. Um, before we went live, we were talking about our, uh, friend Scott moon and, uh, Scoot Moonay. Yeah. In his, his musical adventures. Um, yeah. Uh, I used to also be uh, kind of an armchair musician and, and played with several bands. And I remember when I was first learning to play guitar or piano that I would play with people and I wouldn't understand where the chord changes were. And, mm. and I remember playing with other musicians and they're like, just you'll feel when the change comes. And I completely did not feel when the change came. And so, you know, when when you're first learning to play music, you'll you kind of learn to either read music or read chord charts or something so that you kind of get a visual representation. And in a lot of ways, that's what you guys are talking about, that there are um, fundamental elements that you use to understand story until it just becomes second nature. Right. Well, then after playing with people long enough, I started to feel where the chord changes came in and I could understand. And it's just that there's no way to describe it other than you just know where the music's going to change, even though you're not familiar with the music. Um, and those are, you know, in, in story, we talk about turning points where we, we go from one part of the story to another. Um, do you, do you guys, when you're, when you're plotting out a novel, do you, um, think about these turning points where you're going to transition the reader from this part of the story to this part, or does it just kind of, does that come naturally? Do you have to think about where you're going to transition the reader 
to different parts of the story? It's I not a, not on individual novels. I do have to think about that in series though. The mm. series have their own arc, and yeah. you do have to have turning points in series. You know where one arc, you know, comes to its head, and right. um, I do think about that a lot for a series because that doesn't come quite as naturally to me as just an individual novel. But I don't really think about it too much for individual books. I I think about the turning point. Um, not so much in as like a position in structure, mm -hmm. but as a emotional resonance for the reader, right? So like I I know that I want a reader to feel this here. How yeah. do I make the reader feel that? And so that that would be my turning point. Like uh, I have a point in the story where I need the reader to be engaged. Be heart, uh, be be heart fallen, be be happy or whatever. Um, uh, in um, in Striker's War, uh, I, I've talked about it before, where you have two main characters, and each chapter has a, a line from a, a death letter that one of the characters mm -hmm. sent to his parents, and uh, I knew that I needed that death scene to be significant, but I also knew that I needed the reader to care about it. And so when you have that type of a turning point in a book, it's not just you're going to kill the, kill the character. You need the reader to care about it. So then you've, and that's why I don't have a problem with the middle because I use the middle to, to just grab a hold of the reader and bring them in. And so when I make that turn or I have that reveal or I have that incident happen, it's like a gut punch and the re and, and all of the scenes prior or a lot of the scenes prior to that, I design to build the readers, uh, empathy for the character and what they're doing. So when it does happen there, I mean, I, I don't know how many people I've had message me or leave a review and say that when they got to the end of striker's war they cried like grown men would send me messages of like bro <laughs> i was cutting the onions at the end of your story like <laughs> and and every single time i'm like fantastic that's exactly what i wanted you to do i wanted you to cry at the end of that book and i and i spent a significant portion of my time writing that book trying to figure out how to build the reader's emotional connection to the character. Um, so when you talk about turning points and plot, like those are like, it's when you're watching a horror movie and the camera is like on half of the person and you know that the monster is over here and you're like, I, I know, I know that there's a turn around, dude, there's a monster behind you turn around. Right. Like it's, it's a, it's a function of the horror movie. Like that's a, a device that they're building tension. It's kind of a, like a ham fisted way to do it because you watch a movie, you know, the monster is going to come out of nowhere. Um, so I try to, I try to build that without that device to build the, the resonance. Is there a better compliment than making a reader cry? I honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't think there is be, because humor is really easy to do. Yeah. Uh, it's very simple. Humor is easy. Um, uh, like tension in a sense of how are they going to do this? That's also simple, but getting someone to actually cry over someone that doesn't exist, right. <laughs> uh, over an incident that never happened. Um, that is very hard. Um, and, and it's very hard in a book because in a movie you have 
the music, you have the lighting, you have the set, you like, you have the character, you have the person on screen who's crying. And then so you have like a sympathetic emotional response to the entire impact of the scene in a book. You don't have that. You don't have the music. You don't have an actor. You don't have anything that they're looking at. It's all in their head. So to make somebody cry is so difficult to do. Like I got an email from, uh, a reader one time when when I published my book Writer's Block that this this person said you made me snot cry and that, that, <laughs> that is my favorite piece of feedback I've ever gotten from anybody that I made someone snot cry I'm gonna I'm gonna frame that and one hundred percent yeah and you can't do it with every book right like no, if you make no, you everybody can't. if you make everybody cry at every one of your books like it's it's kind of yeah. like like Nick Sparks does that uh with his his books but that's the genre that you're getting into you kind of want that deep emotional feeling when you read those books and then more often than not it's like a a kind of like a a cathartic happy like oh i'm so glad everything worked out well and and i feel like you can only do that so much um for sure yeah and you know and like you said nicholas sparks has made a career out of that um but there's a turning point somewhere where he still sells plenty of books. I mean, who yeah. are, who are we three to 100% you know, to, to say anything about his career? That's not what I'm saying. Um, but you know, you, you kind of get known for that and for sure. And you know, that can be a negative. I, I, I don't, I mean, he's it can be a negative, but books. it can be harder to maintain yes, because then the reader, eight. the reader knows it's going to come. Right. And so they're, they're expecting that. And to be able to, to, yank on that emotional chain multiple times and get the same result every time that's right that now that's difficult yeah rick I, I feel like we stepped on you a minute ago i'm sorry what were you gonna say oh it's a big deal you kind of gone past it sorry right. <laughs> i'm sorry um speaking of um of of uh devices that you use over and over again some some people rely on plot twists and a plot twist is one of those things that, um, when done well, um, you know, kind of sucks all the air out of the room. And you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe he did that. Right. But that's another one of those things that, you know, uh, you know, M. Night Shyamalan has kind of become, you know, I mean, the six sense was awesome. Yeah. Except, and even the village was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the village, um, you know, the, the whole thing is is uh, is based on a premise that is uh, this movie is, what, 15 years old. So yeah. spoiler alert, if you right. haven't seen it, <laughs> right, you know, um, that everything you believe is real is not real at all. It's a construct and it's yep. a construct made up by a group of people to hold control over this larger group of people. And yep. we'll just say it that. Well, someone told me what the plot twist was uh, before I saw it, and and then the the movie's no good because you when you watch it you say, well, all of this is not real. I, I right. know it's not real, therefore it has no tension. Yeah. Um. So you know, with a plot twist like that, um, the the re readability, um, is shortened. Now, like you talked about in in your book earlier earlier that that you would love it for people to read it twice one for the kind of big reveal, but the second time so they could see 
the setup and, and yeah. understand what went into that. And, and that's great. Um, you know, but if you're just going for the cheap, you know, pull the rug out from under people, you can't do that very often. Uh, what do you guys think about the plot twist and the, you know, taking readers off guard? Well, um, I like plot twist. Uh, oh, we all love <laughs> plot twist. I like using plot twist, but uh, yeah. you, the problem is uh, you have to be very careful to set it up earlier in the book and not make it feel like it, you just pulled it out of your right. wazoo right then. You have to set up, you have to put clues earlier in the book that this is the case. Um, and actually, that was the great part that I loved about uh, pantsing back when I did it is because rather than plot out my plot twist, I would go back and reread what I'd written and I would and I would see, okay, what clues have I left pointing to something without realizing it? If somebody's reading this, what does all this point to? And that that was always fun because instead of inventing the plot twist just out of whole cloth and working backwards, I went from what I'd written so far, I'm like, what is the only thing that makes sense after I put, painted myself into this corner? Now, that was always fun. But now, outlining, you know, and it's a business and I'm in, you know, I'm in the, in the business, so I have to do it the not so much fun way. But, it, you know, you, you still look back and uh, even as you do the outline and say, I have to put clues here that this is the case. I like to do... Well, like we said, it, if you do it all the time, it's really hard to do it and, and have the same impact every time. So I, I try to limit my plot twists. Like in some books, I'll do a big twist. Like, uh, like everything you thought was like in Valor, everything you thought was true is not true. And now we're going to show you what's real. Um, in my new series, Weaponized, uh, uh, and this is a writing show, so I'm going to spoil my own stuff. So <laughs> if you don't want weaponized spoiled, then like I'll raise my hand when I'm done talking about it. But uh, uh, there's there's a character in Weaponized um, who is a spy. Um, but the for the first half or uh, two thirds almost of the book. You don't know that he's a spy. You just know that he's a contractor slash bounty hunter, whatever, and he's got a whole bunch of resources. And he's in, you know, he's independently wealthy and he does his own thing. Um, but then there at there's a certain part in the book where he gets arrested um and taken to like a naval uh intelligence office, and they're they're he's in an interrogation room. And he's not saying anything. He's just sitting there chilling. And, and halfway through that scene, one of the cops or whatever you want to call him comes into the office. He's got like this stone face on and he looks at the other detective and he's like, interview's done. And uh, the detective, they, they have a back and forth and they're like, what are you talking about? And they're like, interview's done. He's free to go. And there, there's more to it than that. I'm just being very basic yeah. in general. But um you know, he, he gets up, he has like kind of a, a, an internal satisfaction of, yeah, I figured that was going to happen. And everybody in the office is just kind of like dumbfounded. 
and there this guy who they caught red-handed doing all this stuff is now walking out a free man and they can't even interview him they can't do nothing to him um and then he calls his handler and then we find out he's a spy working for the government but he's like kind of a lone operative and uh he's kind of off the books like black ops type stuff that's when we learn all of that and then we if you think about like different elements and plot points that i have sprinkled through the previous chapters he's talking about going through databases he's talking about like interacting with law enforcement and this and that and you can kind of parse together okay that was inevitable i didn't see it coming but it was inevitable that this would happen it's not like a deus ex machina where somebody just makes a phone call and it happens um and that was a twist in weaponized uh, but it wasn't like a major plot twist it was just a ah okay nice very cool now what right and it right and it it increases the stakes that much more as the as the book goes on so i i like to do plot twists like you said with m night um you can't watch an m night movie and go i wonder what's going to happen here because the the whole be right. the half of the movie you're like this is okay it's not going to matter the whole the whole first half of any m night movie doesn't matter you can just right. skip to, you can skip to the middle and see the twist because, because everything it's all misdirection it's not, all misdirection signs um you're right signs yeah. you could watch signs and and there's not a a critical point that happens where the rest of the movie doesn't matter but a lot of his movies you watch and the the first half or 60 or 70 percent is basically all set up for this should be earth-shattering plot twist but he's done it so many times it's not that's why Sixth Sense was so good because he'd never done a movie like that before. And 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 when you watch it, there's no indication as a first time viewer that the twist is there. And then when it happens, it's such a big like, holy crap. And then you watch. That's part of the reason why I wanted you to why I want people to read Valor a second time, because the second time you watch the Sixth Sense, you see all these things and you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't see this in the first place because it it's so well crafted. Like Fight Club, like Fight Club, like one hundred percent. I yeah. love Fight Club, and I've read the yeah. book and the movie. I think the movie's actually. Josh, better don't talk about it. Don't no no. We don't talk if, about it. If there's one rule, we don't. <laughs> I actually found the. Uh, I had it on DVD, and I found i went through and paused every time there was a flash of tyler durden like they do the little subliminal where he's yeah. standing there i paused it and took pictures of every single one <laughs> of his little things so he's behind the doctor and he's like got this cheesy grin on his face in the beginning of the movie oh they were great excellent this this brings up a good point um any any story with a well-crafted plot there is going to be a plot resolution that anytime that you reread this story, you know what's going to happen. You know how the story's going to resolve. You can never get that first reading experience back again because yeah. you you know how it's going to. What differentiates that, the reader understanding where the plot's going and what the resolution will be from uh, an M. Night Shyamalan Sorry, uh, night. If we're picking on you today, but, um, yeah, what differenti differentiates the the classic resolution from the oh, you don't need to watch the first half of M Night Shyamalan movie because it's all just misdirection. 
what separates those two and how would you can, clarify can you uh, uh you know can you redo that question i'm not understanding the what what you're asking the uh, okay so um I think I can take a stab at the answer and maybe my okay. answer will help. So I, I think that for the resolution to matter, you have yeah. to, it's like I said before, you have to make it, you have to build that for your audience. So instead of having a plot twist that just negates everything that you've already done, you have a plot twist that elevates and enhances what you've already done. Um, and so in this case, you know what the plot twist is going to be as an author. And so you write the story in a way that builds the pool. So when that plot twist happens, it's impactful. Um, but it, like in the case of M night where, where it's all just kind of misdirection by the time you get to that point, you care about the characters, but then the plot happens and you're like, or the twist happens. You're like, okay, well, none of this other stuff matters. The, 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 with me, when I plot, I want all of the stuff to matter and build to the twist or to the resolution. And that way, when the resolution happens, it matters. If that makes sense. I don't know if that answered your question, but that was yeah, the first thing. That that you're asking what the difference is between a, a good use of plot twist and a bad one, because I wasn't quite sure what the alternatives were. Yeah, yeah kind of. Well, um, or um, or just the, the fact of the story unraveling. Um, in in a linear way, so that you understand. For instance, um, in the the Marvel movies, um, whatever the movie was with Thanos, um, you Infinity see Thanos, War. you know, doing this thing, um, wiping out half of humanity, and you know, if you've watched it before, you or you know, if you understand how Marvel movies work, right? Thanos is going to be defeated at the end. But you will rewatch that movie if you're a fan of the genre um, just to experience it again, even though you know how it's going to you know, play out, as opposed to an M. Night Shyamalan movie where um, you, you, you know how it's going to end, but you, you feel cheated uh, almost. Like you can't watch it again because, oh, he's just going to play a trick on me, even though we know how it's going to end in the same way that we know how a Marvel movie is going to end. Well, I think in the case of Infinity War, when you talk about the uh, like Infinity War and Endgame, um, and this goes back to the middle of the movie, watching Infinity War for the second or the 18th time, like I've watched, like yeah. at the end, you know what's going to happen, but the scenes in between are so well crafted and cool to watch that it's the experience of watching those things and how interesting and fun that they are in and of themselves so you're not watching the like an m night movie you're watching for the twist yeah. but in a marvel movie you're watching for the overall experience and you're seeing these cool fight scenes and you know captain america and, and scar uh uh scar uh black widow coming out of the shadows and helping vision and the scarlet witch like that's a cool scene to watch and right. when you get to that scene you're like oh yeah i love this scene and then you go to the next scene you're like oh yeah i love this scene and so they all stack they're all important they all have their own individual pool for an audience to watch and then when you get to the end you still have the great inner in, in interaction with thanos and, and that whole thing but the movie as a whole is fun to watch not just for the twist so That's, are you saying if your characters are strong enough your plot doesn't matter <laughs> no be because they have to work 
together, right? They, right. if you have like a great example of that is the Dark Tower series by by yeah. Stephen King. Um, I will read the first four every year: Gunslinger, the the Drawing of the Three, uh, the Wastelands, and Wizarding Glass. I will read four of those in a row every year. I have done it for like six years, and I stop at Wizarding Glass. I don't As read the rest. I, 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 I've, I've read it all the way through once. <laughs> I've, I've made the journey. I've got to the dark tower. I read the you don't authors. Need that kind of negativity in your I life. I don't need all that because, <laughs> because really nothing substantial happens in the rest of the books. Nothing, nothing substantial, nothing that actually affects the story of Roland in the dark tower really happens in the final three books. Even the last book, if you, if you read, if you finish, wizard and glass and then you skip to the author's note in the dark tower where he said everything's hunky dory don't read past this and then you read past this with roland going into the tower you could skip all of that go to that part and have a complete great experience with that book but those books have great characters i love roland i love uh uh Detta odetta and uh and eddie and oi but the book the plot of those last books is it's not there and so you have to have a good plot and great characters to have, to maintain that readability. You know, it's funny. In my opinion. I haven't, I haven't read the Dark Tower series, but uh, there was a series I read back in the 80s. Um, it's a post-apocalyptic, uh, you know, uh, post-nuclear war series about this guy who travels around in a armored up ambulance. And the name of the book is called Traveler. And... Um, the end it's like an eight or nine book series in the end of the last book it does the same thing that the dark tower did versus before that he winds up going back to the beginning of the series you know after all this he like goes back to the beginning of everything and it's and it's the same it's the first scene from the first book so it's kind of funny that the I, you know, the great, it's like we I talked like about that. short stories having an uh, ambiguous ending where you can kind of like project what you right. think might happen at the end of that's what I love about the very end of the dark tower is that it is the book's been out for years when he steps through the tower and he has the horn of Eld and he steps back onto the desert and he says something about this time it's going to be different or I'm going to do it better this time or whatever, you can project in your mind. He didn't have the horn before. The horn is going to change everything about the story. And, right. it's, and so I love that. And you can't, but you can't do that with everything. You you know, most, most books you can't do that with. Um, but in this particular case, just because of how it was written, I thought that was a fantastic ending. If you cut out like Song of Susanna and Wolves of the Call and all that stuff. I, I think an updated um, marketing blurb for the Dark Tower should be the Dark Tower. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You think. know, the only thing I really enjoyed about well, it, I, it's the same way. Though. It's the same way. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing I really enjoyed about, I think it was the song of Susanna. Maybe it was the Wolves of the Kala. But when they go and they meet Stephen King. Yeah. And he's a character in his own book, and yeah. they they have like the internet. Like I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah. And also, when you look at like the different characters that come in, like the guy from Salem's Lot, and all these other characters that kind of come into the the King verse or whatever, like those are clever things. Um, but again, clever ideas don't make a good story. The 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 it movies that they made a couple of years ago, when when Stephen King becomes a character in the movie and starts trashing on his own endings. Right. Yeah. 
was was beautiful was beautiful i like the ending of the movie the shining better than i like the ending of the book actually you, you know the yeah stephen king does is not a fan of the movie no he's not a I'm fan with, at all of the movie but, but i'm I, with I, you on that yeah I, yeah I think it's well uh more fully realized right for sure yeah yeah um we would be remiss to talk about plot and not uh, talk about Chekhov's gun. Uh, if mm. if you've ever written a book, you you've probably heard this, but um, Chekhov is a remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say in the first chapter that there's a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. Mm. Um, do you guys have a, a system in place where you look for payoffs? for the thing that you promised and and do you deliver on that promise i have a personal thing where i have to watch this because i am very prone to throwing in details that aren't going to matter so i start looking <laughs> in the book and i'm like wait a second is this thing that i just introduced going to have any significance in the rest of the book or am i right. just mentioning it because it's cool if i am then i just need to like be make it either get rid of it entirely or make it less significant in the scene. Maybe just like a background detail, like it, say it was Chekhov's gun, just like the room was decorated like a former soldier's down to the gun hanging over the desk, something like that, if it's not going to be used. And I'm only going to yeah. dwell on something if it is going to be used. And I have to remind myself of that constantly because I I have a innate um pull or tendency or nature to want to dis over describe things that are not going to be significant. I, um, the way I do it is I look at, and I'll use the, the um, short story that I'm working on right now. It's a good example. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, EOD or a bomb squad, uh, story where the main character is a bomb technician. And in this case, the checkoffs gun is a thing that we call hand entry. Um, and basically, uh, every movie that has ever done a bomb technician has done it wrong because most, <laughs> most bomb technicians Imagine that. do not go up and go red wire, blue wire. We don't cut wires. We, we don't do any of that. Like most of the time we just blow it up. Like most of the time we either blow it up or we shoot it with water and you know, there's a whole process. But hand entry is a very rare thing um, where you're actually going in and looking at the device and, and doing different things with the device usually never happens. A lot of times you do that with a, a, a robot um, or you just you stand off and you destroy it and that kind of thing. So I made a point in the beginning of this story. He we open and he's operating a drone and he's um, basically rendering a device safe with a drone and they're taking care of it. And he mentions uh, in this opening, uh, about the hand entry problem and, and about that we don't ever do that. And then in the end, he's got to do it. He's got to go and do a hand entry, which is one of the most dangerous things a bomb technician can do. And so in this aspect, it's not technically a gun, it's an idea. Um, and that idea is we never do hand entry. It's extremely dangerous. And at the end of the story, we have to do hand entry because there's next, no other choice. Next never marks the spot. Yeah. 
you know, <laughs> I, I've had this false sense of security for years that if I'm ever faced with a bomb that I can call Josh and he can give me some rhyme that, you know, some little sing song. Oh, the instructions is very, it's, it's very simple. It's very Never simple. cut the red wire. Thing. Just, just <laughs> run the other direction. Just run. If you, if you see a bomb technician running, you try to keep up. Like, let's yeah. go. Come on. Follow, follow that, that big, guy. that big heavy outfits. You should be able to outrun them. I've <laughs> done a, I've done a parade in that thing, and let me just tell you, it's not fun. It's, it's not it's fun not. at all. Jeez. My, my, uh, I was the best robot driver on the team. Hated wearing the suit. Uh, the suit. Especially in the summertime, because the suit's like a hundred pounds. The helmet itself is like thirty pounds, and it takes two people to put the suit on. You can't generally you can't put it on by yourself. Um, and then I mean, there's no movement. You can't turn your head like this because of the way the helmet and the suit is set up. So you have to do this as you're looking around. And uh, yeah, man, a dark helmet. We even had like ice vests that we kept in ice chests so that we could put those on and then put the suit wow. on in the summertime because I mean there's fans in the suit but it's not it's not air conditioning let me tell you and if you fart in one of those things I'm telling you right now <laughs> you are in for a bad time a bad time especially if you had like beans or eggs for breakfast ooh <laughs> man well, on that, let's let's end on <laughs> on, on, on yeah. speaking of Chekhov's gun. Um, there, um, because smart. that is a thing that um that is uh used over and over. Um, can you use the concept of uh like like you were talking about having a, a gun on the wall that that we're looking at? Can we use that as misdirection? Um, because people are expecting that if you highlight this thing, and like you were talking about, Rick, that that you want to really describe the room, and you're kind of conscious of, you know, if I if I put too much emphasis on this, people are going to expect that um, because people kind of expect the Chekhov's gun rule. Can we use that as misdirection? Sometimes I, I sorry, mean, you can't do it too often. Yeah, uh, if you do it too often, then then it's going to be people are either going to suspect you're doing that as a trick over and over, like uh, like Shyamalan, or they're going to think you just don't know how to write. So you have to be very careful only to do it once in a while. Right? Well, I would say that you could combine the two, and this is my master class in five seconds. Have your Chekhov's gun, but then have a plot twist with the Chekhov's gun. And specifically, if we're talking about a gun on the wall, you point that out at the beginning of the book so the reader is like, oh yeah, he's going to use that gun. And then you have a fight scene or something and you go for that gun on the wall and the gun jams and it doesn't work. And then you have to do something else to get out of that situation. And so yeah. the, the, the you have the, you set up the Chekhov's gun, but then you put a twist on it and it doesn't do anything. Not only does that subvert your expectations of what was going to happen with that gun, it gives you a plot twist and elevates the tension because you're like, what now? That's right? some Mark Graney level stuff there. One hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Hey, this gun is demilled. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, um, that is our discussion on plot for this week. Join us again next week. Um, I think we're gonna stay on plot another week because I have um, I have a text file here with a hundred things, ideas that I just jotted out of, and and we got to like four of them. So nice. Um, uh, 
I, Sorry, like my short stories. I no, 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 no. Talk. This was perfect. You um, say you're a pantser, Hank. Plotted <laughs> out this whole thing. I know. Ah, I, yeah, I never said I'm a pantser per se. I just have pantser tendencies. But I specifically want to talk about foreshadowing and setting things up for readers next oh, week. Yeah. So you guys be thinking about that. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next week. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk with authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool shouldn't be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial. Thanks for listening.